Hello everyone, welcome to the Memorial Heights Baptist Church podcast. Today's message was given by Pastor DJ Ritchie on May 23rd, 2021, during our Sunday evening service. If you have never joined us in person, we would love to see you here. Our services are Sunday at 10.30 a.m., Sunday at 7 p.m., and Wednesday at 6.45 p.m. We want to thank you for spending time listening today and encourage you to share these messages with a friend so they too might hear the Word of God. But for now, grab your Bible, open your ears, and let's get into it. I want you to think for a moment tonight about your favorite detective. When I was a kid, I probably would have said the Hardy Boys, maybe Encyclopedia Brown. I used to get so frustrated, I'd read those Encyclopedia Brown books and get them out of the library. I, I had one that I owned, but I'd get them out of the library and I'd, I could never seem to get all of the clues. I'd see something I think I know, I think I know there was, there was some hint here that this was the solution to the mystery that was being presented, but man, that Encyclopedia Brown, he always knew how to put things together. Well, I like detective stories, I like a, a good mystery but as I've shared with you before, I, I think I'd have to say my favorite detective is Hercule Poirot, Agatha, Christ, Agatha Christie's uh, short little Belgian detective, the eccentric, uh, who was always uh, exercising those little gray cells. And I would just always love how he was able to uh, see through people's lies and able to put things together and think about things that when Christy would get to the end of her story, the end of her novel, it would seem so obvious. How, how did I miss it? And yet, it took the great detective, Hercule Poirot, to put all the pieces together. Well, whoever your favorite detective is, Sherlock Holmes, Castle, Nancy Drew, whoever it is, Hercule Poirot, we're going to be detectives tonight as we talk about a mystery that's in Scripture the mystery of something called Midrash. The mystery of Midrash. Midrash is a Hebrew word. We'll talk more about that in a moment. And uh, don't let the word freak you out. Uh, uh, we'll walk through this and help you understand one of the most frequently used prophetic keys uh, in all of the Bible. But as we begin to think about prophecy, let's just quickly review what we've already seen in this series. Number one, we've said that prophecy is a promise. Prophecy is a promise. All of the promises of God are yes in Christ Jesus. And if God is keeping promises through His Son Jesus Christ, we should expect literal fulfillments to those promises. It's not a lot of fun when somebody promises that they'll do something for you and then when they come through, it wasn't quite what you expected. And if they were to tell you, well, I didn't really mean that literally, I just meant that figuratively, I'm sure you'd feel a little bit cheated. Uh, God keeps His promises and prophecies are promises, so we should expect God to fulfill promises literally. Now, as we'll see tonight, that doesn't mean that every single promise is literal, but it does mean that there are literal fulfillments to those promises, and I'll try to explain that a little more as we get farther into the message. Number two, we spent some time talking about the fact that prophecy is also a proving ground, 
And we, for a couple weeks, went to Deuteronomy chapter 13 and Deuteronomy chapter 18. And we saw that God, from the very beginning, told us that there are some things that we should expect of His prophets that are very different than the false prophets that will litter the landscape. And as the Apostle Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 2, just as there was false prophets among the people in the Old Testament, so there will be false teachers among us. And so this is nothing new. So how do we expose and how do we know who is a true prophet and how do we know what's a true prophecy and what's a true word from God? Well, Deuteronomy says that we need to be able to verify it 100%, that it must be 100% accurate. Again, that would give us uh, uh, reason to believe that this is going to be something that's literable, so it's something that is measurable to determine whether or not it's accurate. We also saw that God says that you must be able to not only verify the prophecy, but you also have to test the messenger who brings the prophecy. You have to test the message that accompanies the prophecy because the devil has power too. The devil is in the world inactive too, and there are more than one source of there's more than one source of, of the supernatural. And so the devil's at work, and the devil is good at making predictions and making quote-unquote prophecies. And so God says from the very beginning, listen, I'm going to test you. Prophecy is so that you can test me, but I'm also going to use prophecy to test you and to see if you really love me, if you're really going to obey me. And so you have to be willing to test not just the prophecy, but also the prophet and their message and their character as well. It's why John says in 1 John 4, 1, we must test the spirits to see whether or not they be from God. Now, we saw last week that in order to accomplish that, sometimes what God would do was He would give more than one prophecy at the same time so that the prophecy that was fulfilled in the next handful of years would validate the prophecy that is going to be fulfilled in thousands of years. Because, of course, if, if you have a prophecy that speaks to something that's thousands of years in the future, we have no way of validating that to know whether that's a, a true a prophet of God. But what God would often do is He would allow that prophet to make other prophecies that could be validated so that you could therefore see that the prophecy that was in the distant future is also going to be reliable as well. Sometimes uh, it's not that there were many prophecies given at the same time. Sometimes it's that a prophecy will be fulfilled in stages. And you'll see as we go through the Old Testament that there were some prophecies that were fulfilled little by little by little. And some of them just by nature. Think about the prophecies of Daniel, uh, about the kingdoms that would come. Well, obviously, if David or excuse me, if Daniel is prophesying about successive kingdoms, uh, you're going to have to wait till the end of that succession to see that all of those kingdoms uh, have actually come to pass. And so we are right now, uh, we've already seen the, uh, the almost complete fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy. We're still awaiting the very final form of the uh, arisen Roman Empire, uh, which will rise again uh, in the form of ten kings, Daniel prophesied. But we know that that's going to happen because everything else happened, literally. Babylon really did rule, and, and it really was replaced by a succession of kingdoms. And Daniel uh, perfectly, supernaturally, by divine ability, prophesied Alexander the Great and the division of Alexander's kingdom and all of these things that God said were going to happen that 
happened exactly as he said they would. So if everything leading up to that was fulfilled exactly as God said, why would we think the rest of the prophecy is just symbolic? It's ridiculous. But we have to remember, prophecy is a proving ground. Last week, we also saw that prophecy is sometimes a pattern. Sometimes it follows a pattern. This is another way that God signals things to us so that we can test them, so that we can know that God is the one who is working. Sometimes God uses symbolic fulfillments of a prophecy, but again, that does not mean that the symbolic fulfillment invalidates or negates the literal fulfillment. It just means that God has symbolically fulfilled the prophecy Again, as another way of proving it so that you know that in the future it will be literally fulfilled. We saw a couple of examples of that. Number one, John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah before the first advent of Jesus as Jesus was, Jesus was born. But uh, Jesus beginning his ministry after the preparation of John the Baptist, John the Baptist sent to prepare the way for the Lord, to make straight the paths to prepare people's hearts to hear the message of repentance and faith. And so uh, he was not Elijah. John tells us that, by the way, John chapter 1, they asked him, are you Elijah? Are you the fulfillment of the Malachi chapter 4 prophecy? And John the Baptist said, no, no, I'm not Elijah. Not literally. But then in Mark chapter 9, as Jesus was bringing the disciples down off of the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember, Peter said, hey, hey, Jesus, why do the people say that Elijah has to come back? Why do they take that prophecy literally is, is, is actually what he was saying. Why does that have to be literal? And Jesus said, Elijah is coming. He is coming. Look for the literal return of Elijah. But also symbolically, Jesus said he has come in the person of John the Baptist. Last week, we also saw that Jesus came out of Egypt as Hosea 11.1 prophesied. That also was pictured in a pattern that God ran from from Abraham himself coming out of Egypt to the nation of Israel coming out of Egypt in the Exodus to the Septuagint coming out of Egypt hundreds of years before the birth of Messiah and then Uh, Not just the written word of God coming out of Egypt in the form of the Septuagint, but the living word of God coming out of Egypt after his birth and after uh, Mary and Joseph had to flee the country for a time until Herod died and his wrath could be uh, humanly avoided. And so God used that to protect his son and to fulfill his word. So prophecy is a pattern. Sometimes it follows a pattern. Sometimes also we saw last week that prophecy is illustrated as a picture. And we're going to press down into that a little bit more tonight. Uh, God has embedded hidden or symbolic prophecies into some of the texts. And some of these are things that could only be seen in hindsight. So Abraham didn't know that when God called him to take Isaac up onto the mountain and sacrifice him, Abraham didn't know that what God was doing was painting a prophecy in living color and giving a living illustration, prophetic illustration, that his son would be crucified. That he would lay down his son and sacrifice his son for all of us. Jonah didn't know when he 
ran from Nineveh and got swallowed by the great fish, that he was going to be a prophetic picture of Jesus himself being in the grave three days and three nights. And yet that's exactly what God was doing there, taking the sin of Jonah and turning it into the sign of Jonah. God uh, works all things together for good. And he made something good out of Jonah's sin, turned it into a sign that his son would be in the ground, the belly of the earth for three days and three nights. So sometimes prophecy is a picture. Now, when we talk about prophecy as pictures, we're starting to talk about something that the Hebrews knew, and sometimes you'll hear, uh, usually from the Messianic Jewish perspective today, uh, something called Midrash. How many of you ever heard the word Midrash, just so I know? Okay, a few of you, a couple of you have heard that word. Uh, It's not confusing, it's it's not going to be a hard concept to grasp, but just in case, let's stop for a moment and let's cover some basics of Bible study. When I was at Penwood Bible Church, I had the privilege of leading the uh, kids' ministry, the children's ministry, during the midweek on Wednesday nights. And uh, we, for a couple of years, used Answers in Genesis material. And uh, that fit our need for at least that first year. It really fit what we were looking to to do. But one of the things that Answers in Genesis does in their curriculum is is they start out at the very beginning, very basics, here's how we are going to study the Bible together. Here's how you need to study the Bible. And they lay out three things for the kids. Number one, observation. Number two, interpretation. Number three, application. Observation. We said, kids, observation. Get your hands, put your hands together. Look through your binoculars there. All right. Observation. What does it say? Interpretation. Kids, take your little pinky finger, put it up against your temple. What does it mean? And then we're going to put on our sunscreen, right, in the middle of the summer, and we're going to do application. What does it mean to me? Now, as simple as that is, do you realize how many Christians skip number two and go right to application? They open their Bible And the first thing they do, in fact, some of them skip observation. They don't even read what it says. They read what they think it says. They read what they want it to say. What does it mean to me? Oh, I don't see anything in there for me today. The Bible Bible doesn't help me. I don't know why I need to do this every day. Why does the preacher say get in the Bible every day? Listen, you can't skip to number three. You can't skip to application. You have to see what it actually says, what it actually means, and then you can get to what it means to me. Now, you say, well, okay, is that actually what the Bible says to do? Well, let's look at a few examples. Some 350 times, Jesus and the apostles used either direct quotes from the Scriptures, from what we now call the Old Testament. They just called it the Scriptures. Or indirect references that were clearly references to the Scriptures about 350 times that some, somewhere around there that, that people can agree on that. That's either a quote or that's a pretty clear reference. So yes, they knew what the Bible said. And they expected us to know what the Bible said. In fact, you remember in the Garden uh, of Eden, 
What did Satan say to Eve? Did God really say? And what did Jesus say to the serpent when Jesus was tempted? Andy brought this out a, a few months ago now when Andy spoke. What did Jesus say to, to, to Satan when he was tempted? It is written. It is written. It is written. We need to know what the Bible says. In, in Romans chapter 4, Paul says, what does the Scripture say? In Galatians chapter 4, Paul says, what say it the Scriptures? Jesus said in Matthew twenty two twenty nine 29 to uh, the Sadducees, ye do err not knowing the Scriptures nor the power of God. So we need to know what the Scriptures say, but that also leads us into the next thing because the, the Sadducees, they had a concept of what it said, but they did not understand it. We also have to understand it. That means we have to ask, what does this text mean? We have to ask those simple questions that we, that we were taught in elementary. The who, what, where, when, why, how, how often. We need to ask those questions. To what extent? Forgot that one. We have to ask those questions of the text when we're reading and not just assume that we know because not everything is about us in the Bible. It's all for us. It's all to us, but it's not all about us. And by the way, this usually requires time. It requires effort. But the default meaning of Scripture, the default interpretation, consistently was to take statements literally within their context, within their genre, right? So a metaphor is a metaphor, but it's a literal metaphor, <laughs> It's an actual metaphor. We can't just make the Bible mean and say whatever we want. We have to say, okay, is, if this is a metaphor, if, this is, if, I'm, if I'm reading poetry, it doesn't mean that the poetry isn't going to be interpreted literally, but there might be a little bit more poetic language used there, might be a little more po uh, poetic uh, imagery used there. But we understand that. I mean, we understand that when it comes to any, any other book that we read. But somehow when we get to the Bible, we think that the laws of literature don't apply and we can make it mean whatever we want it to mean. But notice Daniel in Daniel chapter 8. Uh, Daniel chapter 8. Daniel says, And it came to pass when I, even I, Daniel, had seen the vision and sought for the meaning. Then behold, there stood before me as the appearance of a man, and, and God sent Gabriel to him. But God sent Gabriel when Daniel was trying to get to the meaning, not just what it says, but what does it mean? Daniel chapter 9. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus of the seed of the Medes, which was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, Daniel 9.2, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by books the number of the years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolation of Jerusalem. And I set my face unto the Lord God to seek by prayer and supplications with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And I, he said, when I saw Jeremiah's prophecy, I didn't say, I bet that's not literal. I bet that number's just symbolic. 70, that's a biblical number. That probably is just a symbolic number. That's not what Daniel did. When Daniel saw the number, he said, that must be a literal thing. This prophecy is about to be fulfilled. I better get my heart ready. <laughs> it, the time's almost up. I better get my heart ready. I better spend some time in prayer. He took God's word literally. He took God's prophecies literally. He didn't just try to make them disappear into the nether. 
by saying they're just symbolic or they're just you know metaphors and they're just allegories and and they mean something then it's just so mysterious we can't figure it out that's not what he did you know we preach the way we do uh, out of the tradition of the apostles and prophets and that tradition really goes back to Ezra I want you to listen to uh, Ezra here for a moment Ezra chapter 7 and as Ezra and Nehemiah are working together to uh, restore the temple and to restore the worship of God in Jerusalem after the walls had been torn down and the people now are God is bringing them back to Jerusalem Ezra 7 says, verse 10, For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach in Israel statutes and judgments. So the first thing that Ezra says is, I better get my heart right and I better do the work of preparing my heart so that I can understand God's word. And when I come to God's word, I'm coming with the expectation that there's something that it wants me to do, that God wants me to do. And then I'm going to use that and teach other people what God wants us to do. Verse uh, 25, And thou, Ezra, after the wisdom of thy God that is in thine hand, set magistrates and judges which may judge all the people that are beyond the river, all such as know the laws of thy God, and teach ye them that know them not. So, Ezra, the people that know the law of God, you, you get them to teach other people, and you find people who don't know the law of God, and you teach them. The Bible is something to be taught so that it can be understood. We have to know what it says, and we have to then interpret it. Nehemiah, again, Nehemiah and Ezra were contemporaries. Uh, Listen to what uh, Nehemiah 8, verse 8, well, let me start in verse 4. And Ezra the scribe stood upon a pulpit of wood, which they had made for the purpose and beside him stood uh, Matthiah, Shema, and a bunch of names that we don't need to know how to pronounce today. Verse 5, And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, not because, not because he was better than the people, but so that everybody could see him. Maybe he was a short guy like me, I don't know. But, but so that everybody could see him and everybody could hear him, because this was, of course, before PA systems and and before uh, modern technology. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. I, I've been in churches where people stand up when the Scripture is read. That's not a tradition that we, that we currently follow here. Uh, not saying that we would never do that. Um, but that's where that tradition comes from. It comes from Ezra. It was practiced when Ezra was teaching this way. So there was a pulpit made so that Ezra could teach the people from the pulpit Uh, This is not, as some people have ridiculously said, some kind of pagan tradition that we brought into the church. And why why do you have preachers preach? And that where does that come from? Well, I'm showing you where it came where it comes from. It comes from the Word of God. It comes from Ezra. And Ezra, verse 7, caused the people to understand the law, and the people stood in their place. So they read in the book and the law of God distinctly and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. We need to take time to make sure that we are understanding what God is saying to us. That doesn't mean that we won't have questions. That doesn't mean that we'll have all of our questions answered. 
Because again, as Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. God has not revealed everything to us, but we can know the scriptures. And this is why in Acts 17, the Christians in Berea were called by God more honorable than the Christians in Thessalonica. Because when Paul taught the Bereans, they said, is that true? I'm, you know what, Paul? Uh, thank you for sharing that. We're going to go home tonight. And before we go to bed, we're going to get in the Word and we're going to make sure that what the preacher said was actually true. And we're going to compare Scripture with Scripture and see. And God said, that is honorable. The Thessalonican Christians, they had a lot going for them. They, they had a lot of good qualities, but they were tossed back and forth by every wind and wave of doctrine. I mean, Paul taught them in, uh, about prophecy, and then he had to write them a letter to remind them about what he had taught them, and then they still got all messed up because somebody came along and wrote a forged letter saying it was from Paul and, and saying that, oh, hey, we're living, in the, we're living in the day of the Lord. This is the tribulation. We're living in the tribulation. Do you know there's people that still say that today? They're Thessalonican Christians. Doesn't mean they don't have good qualities, but they don't have a grounding in the Word of God that enables them to see false teaching from true teaching. They just believe what they're taught, whatever they're taught, and whoever the flavor of the month is. And that's what was happening in Thessalonica. So we need to be Bereans. Then we can get to application. Okay, how does that apply to my life? What does that mean to me? Now, there's a fourth thing that I would add to the list that Answers in Genesis provided our kids. Yes, we have observation. Yes, we have interpretation. Yes, we have application. But there's another way that the New Testament studied the Old Testament and that teaches the Old Testament, and that's number four, illustration. What else could it mean? What does it say what does it mean? What does it mean to me? What else could it mean? Is there a picture here of something? Is God developing a pattern? And what you're going to see in the next few minutes is that this happens constantly in the New Testament. This is how the apostles and Jesus taught the Old Testament, including the prophecies of the Old Testament. So this is something we need to learn. Now, we've lost this. Remember a few weeks ago, I told you that the church began, it was all Jewish. And then you have the Ethiopian eunuch who is converted. Uh, and then you have uh, Gentiles starting to get saved. And, and the missionary movement is, is going around the world because persecution is forcing them around the world. And Paul is on his missionary journeys. And all of a sudden, the church becomes very Gentile. And by the end of the first century, the church has shifted and it's almost entirely Gentile, and what happened in the process of that is we have lost some of the cultural context, and some things in our Gentile minds we just, we just haven't really thought about. And so the Hebrews have an exegesis or a way of interpreting the text called Midrash. The word Midrash is found a couple times in the Old Testament in the book of Second Chronicles. In the King James, it's just simply translated as story. But literally, the word midrash means inquiring into. Inquiring into. Midrash is what else does it mean? What else could it mean? 
Is there a picture being painted here? Is this a metaphor of something? Is there a spiritual application? Is there a spiritual picture that's, that's prophetic? Now, midrash or midrashim, the plural, they, they are affirmations of doctrine. They're affirmational, not foundational. So we're not saying, when, and, and this is where some Christians have gone too far in the other direction. And of course, the pendulum always swings, right? And we always want to try to make sure that we're not on either extreme, where it's all literalism or it's all throw literalism out the window and, and the Bible just means what I want it to mean. There's a middle ground here that uh, was the ground on which the apostles and Jesus stood. And that is that, yes, there is a literal interpretation. We're not throwing out the literal. We're not replacing the literal. But there may also be a picture or an illustration. These are things that they don't produce doctrine. We don't base our doctrinal beliefs on these pictures, but they do illustrate or picture doctrine. So a couple things that we want to make sure that we do. We don't replace the literal with the symbolic. That's, that's Gnosticism. And Gnosticism overtook the church right around the 3rd, 4th century and became heavily embedded into particularly Roman Catholicism, which began to really completely allegorize the prophecies so that everything that was meant for Israel became about us, became about the church. And then the church didn't even, wasn't even the church anymore. That's Gnosticism, where we, where we just make it mean whatever we want to mean. So we're not throwing out the literal, but neither are we ignoring the symbolic for the sake of literalism. We need to follow the New Testament example. What does it mean? What does it say? What does it mean? What's the literal meaning? What's the literal event? How do I apply that to my life? Okay, now what else does it mean? Is there a picture here of something else? Is there an illustration of doctrine? Now, for sake of time... Let me give you tonight, uh, we're going to look more at this as we get, get into the mysteries of prophecy, but for tonight, let me give you just four examples from the Gospels, two of them we've already talked about, so we, we're not going to spend much time there. When we say that Jesus came out of Egypt, Hebrew, or, uh, Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, the prophecy that out of Egypt will I call my son, God said. Abraham coming out of Egypt, the people of Israel coming out of Egypt, the Septuagint coming out of Egypt, all of those were pictures. They didn't throw out the literal. That didn't mean that Jesus doesn't actually have to come out of Egypt. That's not what it meant. But what it was was a midrash, an inquiring into an illustration, a picture, a pattern that God was drawing for us in anticipation. So Jesus comes out in the seed of Abraham. Jesus comes out in the people of Israel. Jesus, the living word, comes out in the written word, the first time under the authority of the high priest that God's word was translated into another language, which is really critically important to us because uh, I'm not reading from the Greek and Hebrew tonight, right? I'm reading from the English. So the God's word being translated so that God's word could spread around the, the Roman Empire when the apostles it came on the scene, out of Egypt, symbolically fulfilled, then literally fulfilled. Elijah is coming, Elijah has come, symbolically fulfilled, literally fulfilled. Here's another one. This 
is one of the most famous Midrash prophecies in the Bible. The abomination of desolation. The abomination of desolation prophesied by Daniel in Daniel chapter 9. We'll come back to this prophecy at some point in in, in greater detail in the future, but Daniel chapter 9, Daniel uh, has this vision and God sends Gabriel to interpret the vision for him. And Gabriel says to Daniel, 70 weeks, verse 24 of Daniel 9, 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the prince, shall be seven weeks, Three score and two weeks, the streets shall be built again, the wall even in troublous times. And after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, the not for himself. In other words, he's going to die for the people. He's not going to die because of his own sin. He's going to die for the people. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. God says, you know, you're going to know that Messiah has come and Messiah has died for the people because I'm going to wipe out the city and the temple. I'm going to destroy it. And you're going to know that He's come and you missed Him. It's exactly what happened in AD 70. Exactly literally what God said would happen. And the end thereof shall be as a flood and the end of the war desolations and determined. And then He shall confirm. Now He's speaking about the prince who is to come the false Messiah, he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, and in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease, and for the overspreading of abominations he shall make it desolate, even until the consummation. And that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. Now, there's a lot there that we're not going to unpack tonight. But years after this happened, a man named Antiochus, Epiphanes, or if you're scholarly, Antiochus Epiphanes. Okay, I don't know how it's pronounced. You can, pick, you can pick your pronunciation, all right? But this man came and he fulfilled, seemed to fulfill that prophecy. He offered a pagan sacrifice on the altar of the temple. But Messiah hadn't come yet. Messiah hadn't been cut off yet. It looked like it was the literal fulfillment, but it wasn't the literal fulfillment. It was the Midrash fulfillment. It was the symbolic fulfillment. And we know that because Jesus Himself in Matthew chapter 24, verse 15 said, When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, by the way, Jesus Himself took Daniel's prophecy literally. He didn't say... Well, it wasn't fulfilled exactly like God said it would be, but it was mostly fulfilled, so we're going to count that. No, 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 that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said exactly as Daniel said it would happen, the abomination of desolation is going to come. Jesus said that fulfillment, that was just symbolic. The literal fulfillment is coming. And I like what God inspires Luke, or excuse me, God inspires Matthew to add here. Whoso readeth, let him understand. Whoso readeth, uh, Matthew says, listen, think about this. This is how God reveals prophecy to us. It's going to be literal. It was symbolically fulfilled, yes, but it will be literally 
fulfilled. And then the most famous of, maybe the most famous of uh, the Midrash prophecies in the Gospels, uh, Moses lifting up the bronze serpent in the wilderness. Jesus said in John chapter 3, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Remember, the serpents were sent in to bite the people, to poison the people. And Moses made this brass serpent, and he said, all you have to do to be healed is come to this serpent and believe, and God will heal you. People said, that sounds ridiculous. I don't believe that. And they died. And they died. But what was God doing? He was giving us a prophetic picture of Messiah coming on the cross. And Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men unto myself. Even as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, Jesus said, that was a, that was a prophetic picture. That was a midrash. It was a picture of what I was going to come and do. God uses literal and symbolic fulfillments, and the symbolic doesn't replace the literal. It illustrates it. It pictures it. For sake of time tonight, I'm going to walk you through just four more examples, all of them in the book of 1 Corinthians. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We could multiply examples tonight. One of my favorite examples of a Midrash is the Jewish wedding ceremony, which so beautifully pictures the rapture of the church. We'll, spend, we'll talk about that when we have more time to spend on it. Again, we don't believe in the pre-tribulational rapture because of the Midrash picture, but the picture that Jesus gives us of coming back for his bride is perfectly illustrated in the Jewish wedding ceremony in the first century. But for sake of time tonight, let's look at 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians shows us very clearly that the feasts of Israel, the high holy days of Israel, were midrash pictures, prophetic pictures that Messiah was going to come and fulfill. Look at 1 Corinthians Chapter 5, verse 7, Paul, uh, Paul says, Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened, for even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Paul says, yes, there was a literal historical event where the death angel passed over Egypt. And the only people that were spared Losing a firstborn, every firstborn was taken except for the, the houses where the blood of the lamb, not just any lamb, the spotless lamb, were placed on the doorpost above and to the side, picturing the cross. And when the angel of death passed over and he saw the blood on the doorpost, he, he kept going. He went to the next house. He passed over. That was a literal event. But Paul says, Listen, let's do a midrash here. Let's look, at, let's look for a picture. Guys, that's, that's a prophecy of Jesus Christ, of the blood. He is our Passover. He is the lamb that was slain. It's his blood that covers us. And that actually, the blood of Jesus actually removes our sin. It doesn't just cover our sin like the blood of the lambs in the old covenant. 
Jesus is our Passover. And we don't need to observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread literally hashed out in all of the ceremony. All of that was a picture, Paul says, of us dealing with and repenting of our sin. And looking at when God convicts us of our sin and saying, hey, you know what? I need to get my life right. I need God, I need to deal with this sin. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus is our Passover. Look at chapter 10, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea and did all eat the same spiritual meat and did all drink the same spiritual drink for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. Jesus is the rock. When Moses first came. Remember, the people needed water, and there was no water. They were in the desert. And they came to a rock. And God said, Moses, take your staff and strike the rock, and water will come out, and the people will be saved. And they were. Then they circled back. First circle back. It's in the Bible, right? They circled back, and they came back to the same rock later on. God said, Moses, don't strike the rock this time. Don't strike the rock. Speak to the rock. And the water will come out. But Moses had a temper. Moses wasn't perfect either. Moses lost his temper because he was dealing with some, well, listen, let's not be too hard on him, right? No. God says be hard on him. (laughs) God says learn the lesson from their stiff-neckedness. But Moses, he lost his temper and he struck the rock. And God said, because you ruined my picture, you ruined my picture because Jesus isn't going to be struck the second time he comes back. He's going to do the striking. So you ruined my picture, Moses, and because of that, you're not going to go into the promised land. It seems like such a huge, huge punishment for such a small mistake. But it was a picture. And he scribbled on God's picture. And he messed it up. Look at chapter 15. Let me give you two more before we close here tonight. 1 Corinthians 15. These two, I don't want to skip these two. We'll cover them quickly. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. But now in Christ risen from the dead... Now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the first fruits, afterward they that are Christ at his coming. The feast of first fruits, the first of the harvest was given as a sacrifice to God. But there's another harvest coming. The big harvest is coming. And Paul says that is a picture of what's going to happen to us. The first fruits was Jesus' resurrection. But the next harvest, the big harvest, is our resurrection. That's when we all get, that's when the Lord Himself descends from heaven with a shout, 
with the voice of the archangel, the trump of God, the dead in Christ will rise first. Amen? Amen? Chris? Carly? All that we've lost? Dead in Christ, rise first. Listen to what he says. Here's the last one, verse 52. Verse 51 says, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump. Do you know what the last trump is? It's the Feast of Trumpets. Now, we miss that because we're Gentiles, but a Jewish person in the first century reading that knows the, the last trump is what they called Rosh Hashanah. Probably mispronouncing that, but Rosh Hashanah, the Feast of Trumpets. That's what they called it, the last trump. At the last trump, we'll all be raised. A midrash picture, prophetic picture in the feast of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Would you bow your head with me? Andy's going to come. We're going we're gonna to sing a song. You can remain seated as we sing. I just want to be the, this to be a time of reflection as we think. All of these pictures that God has given us, Pictures of Jesus in the Old Testament. Prophecies. I want you to remember what Jesus has done for us. We study prophecy because it's the testimony of Jesus. Father, thank you for the gift of your word, for all of these incredible pictures that you've given to us. The reality, though, being Jesus himself. Thank you for this gift of Jesus. Thank you for his resurrection. Thank you for the life that we have in Jesus. And it's his, in his name we pray. Amen. That's all for today. I hope this has made a positive impact in your relationship with Jesus. If you have never accepted Christ as your Savior and would like to know how, give one of our pastors a call at 301-724-5876. We would love nothing more than to share the good news with you. We hope to see you soon, and until next time, stay faithful.